word of prayer, church. Father in heaven, thank you for allowing us to meet here and to gather today to worship the name of Jesus Christ and to pray and to sit under your word, O Lord, so that our souls might hear the words of life, O God, and be moved. Father, your word has given us some very great and precious promises. And I ask, God, that as we look at the word today, you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your law. So, Father, I pray that you would teach us today and that we, the sheep of your pasture, would hear your voice and that the joy of knowing Christ and following him would be ours. I pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. The verses that were just read from 1 Timothy chapter 4 here are the charge, the serious words given from an old pastor, an old and seasoned pastor to his young and upcoming pastor, Timothy, on how to be a successful minister. You know, in one sense, as I was preparing this week and thinking about this passage of what it means for us, I realized that this really is a sermon for me. So I was preaching this to my own soul, but at the same time, because elders and pastors or shepherds over God's flock are to be examples, to call other people to imitate them, this is not just a sermon for me, but it's also a message for every single one of you who are here today. More generally speaking, this is not just a charge given to how pastors are to live and to function in their ministerial capacity or what it means to be a successful pastor, but actually what it means here is for all of us to, what does it mean to be a successful person in life? That's what Paul is actually getting at here. How do you define success? What is success? And how do you, how do you make sure that you're actually successful? You know, in industrialized countries like ours, Europe, North America, our culture is absolutely obsessed with the idea of success. You can go and look at TED Talks or TEDx Talks, and you can see that there are so many of them of the same sort of category, like secrets of success, theory of success, program your mind for success, successful living, so on and so on and so on. Everyone wants to know how to be successful. But... In other countries, they don't value this thing which I think is distinctly North American. We think that everybody thinks about being successful, but the way that others define a successful life can be quite different. A good life for people in Asia or parts of India is not necessarily personal achievement or building your career, but actually it's having more children, having a community that is meaningful to you, giving yourself over to something that is bigger than yourself. The question that we need to ask ourselves is, what does it mean to actually live a good life? And how do you know that the good life that you think that you're living is absolutely true for people all over the world, or it's a culturally conditioned worldview that is unique to your little specific time and place, continent, and era of human history? What is a good life? Is there such thing as a good life for all human beings for all time? Is there standards for this? And I think the answer to that is yes, actually. God actually answers this question for us in 
the Word of God. Based on what we just read here today, what I'd like to unpack for us here is that a good life is not actually a North American self-directed life, but a good life, according to the Word, is a servant's life. Now, I know that this is counter-cultural to North American thinking, but a good life, the Christian definition, is a life that is wholly given over in service as a servant to the Lord Jesus Christ. A servant's life is a good life, and there is no higher calling and no greater work than anyone can engage in than this. For when you serve the people of God and you serve the purposes of God, you are doing work that will genuinely last forever. You will be able to keep nothing with you when you die. Everybody goes into a box six feet under. But those who work over human souls will take with them lives that last forever into eternity, right through the gates of heaven. But if that is true, there still remains the question for us. If a good life is actually a servant's life, what exactly does a good servant of God do? What does the word say a good servant's life looks like? Now, the verse that we just read that opened up here in verse 6 says, if you put these things before the brothers, or that is the church or the people of God, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Now, what's Paul saying here? What's he telling Timothy? Put what things? What are these things? things. Now, I think naturally it's logical to understand that these things would include what we talked about last week in verses 1 to 5, you know, about false teachers and not to be devoted to the teachings of demons and so on, but also considering that the whole book up to this point has been about instructions for the Christian church, I think these things certainly includes the rest of the book of Timothy. You know, Paul begins by warning people in chapter 1 about the false teachers and the dangers of it. And then he goes on to explain, talk to people about the gospel message, the good news about Jesus Christ, overflowing grace for sinners everywhere. Tell them, he says in chapter 2, to pray for people everywhere and for men and women to live out their unique, gender-specific, God-given roles in the church and outside it as well. Chapter 3, he goes on to say, install qualified elders, not just businessmen who are good at making money in your church as leaders, faithful elders and deacons. You know, leadership is not about getting people to follow your opinion, Timothy. It's about getting people to follow the word of God. You've got nothing to say as a pastor unless it comes from this. I am not the authority, but I am one who speaks under authority. You know, there's so much confusion in our world when it comes to defining success, especially when it comes to Christian ministry, because it's actually so different from all the other arenas of life. You know, in the business world, success in one sense can be fairly easy to define. If your company is in the black, you're making a profit, clients are buying your stuff, you probably are doing pretty well in your business. In exercise, you like working out in the morning. It means getting stronger, getting faster, being able to lift heavier things. <coughs> in school, the university defines it for you. You just log on online, you click that little transcript, and your value and your worth is determined by a number there. Are you a 90% human being, an 80% student, 70%? You know what it means by just checking. 
You know, success usually means that you achieve the goals that you set out to accomplish. But in ministry, you see, success is ultimately not defined by your goals. Just because a pastor grows a church from five people to 5,000 people in five years does not necessarily mean that he's successful in God's eyes. God does not look at the outward things the way that people do, but he looks deep into the heart. Now, I remember the story of one pastor who kept a box of all the cards that he had received, and every time he felt down and absolutely discouraged in the ministry, he would pull out this box of cards and he would read them to himself. And as he read these things, he would remind himself that, yes, yes, no, I'm, I'm actually a good minister. I'm not a failure. Now, encouragement is a good thing, brothers and sisters. Don't think I'm saying you should not encourage me or encourage pastors in general. But what I'm saying is that although the Bible encourages us to encourage one another, encouragement itself can become an idol if you use it to justify your own worth or the value of your ministry. Because if that box becomes what you ultimately go back to, to define who you are and your value in what you do, what you're actually saying is this, God, I'm successful because many people like me. And when people don't like me, then I feel valueless. And if that's how you define your life based on what other people think of you, you will find yourself going up and down like the waves of the sea. That's really dangerous also to do that. Jesus warns about this in the Gospel of Luke when he says to people, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. You know, if you have no wars or no quarrels with anyone, it is entirely possible that you are compromising what you actually believe or not standing up for injustice as you shy away. Just because everybody speaks well of you does not necessarily mean you are doing right. Those who cowered in fear and refused to protect Jews in Nazi Germany were not doing the right thing. You know, if the Apostle Paul defined success by the number of people who liked him, he was actually a failure then at the end of his life. 2 Timothy chapter 4 shows us that at the end of Paul's life when he was in prison, he says, all people have deserted me and that he was alone. This is the great apostle who wrote half the New Testament alone at the end of his life. And if loneliness is what defines you as a failure, then you're in real trouble indeed. The question that we need to ask is, how do we define Christian success? And the answer that God gives to this is success is not defined by what you having your own will done, but by doing the will of your master who is in heaven. It's about his will being done. You know, there's a story told about Charles Simeon, who was a pastor in the 19th century in Cambridge, England, who was assigned by a bishop to be the pastor of a church that actually rejected him. For five years during the Sunday afternoon lectures, because the church couldn't do anything about the morning sermon because he was installed, they chose, instead of the pastor to do it, another brother in the church to give the lectures for the next five years. And then when that brother actually left the church as a statement to their pastor, they got another person to do it for the next seven years, 12 years of this. 
On Sundays, the churchgoers would actually lock their own personal pews. Yeah, in those days, people had pews that they set up in church, and you could lock them because, like, that's my pew. Nobody else is allowed to sit there. And you could claim things like that. They would lock the pews just so that nobody else could get in to hear the preaching of God's word. You know, Simeon, not to be deterred, actually, took chairs and he would set them up in the aisles and in every free space he could, but the church wardens, unhappy with that, would take the chairs and throw them outside the church instead. He did this for year after year. After 10 years of ministering to a hostile crowd, Simeon actually was able to obtain a legal order to stop people from locking their pews in the church. But he chose actually not to use it but instead choosing to win the people over with his patience, his kindness, his love, and his perseverance. You know, the question for us, as we look at it from a very narrow human point of view, at the 10-year mark, he would say, was Charles Simeon a success? Was he a successful pastor? Was he a successful human being? If you could see only his first 10 years, you might think, absolute failure, just give up. Pack up. They don't want you here. Why do you want to be here? But he couldn't do that. If you saw how the next 40 years turned out of his ministry, he stayed there for over 50 years, you would change your mind and realize that Charles Simeon's perseverance paid off, and he truly was a success then. But the issue is this. Does success depend on whether or not you have people sitting in the pews, people coming to your company, or people even liking you? Because if it does then what is important is what other people think or how they define what you've done rather than what you're actually doing. You know, the truth is, none of this is important. What matters the most about Charles Simeon, why I think he was admirable, even if he died after 10 years, is that he was faithful. The text says in verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a faithful servant, a good servant of Jesus Christ. In other words, this is the secret to Christian success. Christian success is not defined by accomplishing self-created goals. God, I'm successful if I have 100 people come. God, I'm successful if I build my business to work be $5 million worth of revenue. It's actually being faithful to the tasks that God has laid out for us. See, we are not sovereigns in this life, able to dictate and demand what it is we think is a good life. We are servants, servants of the great king, And as servants, the king defines what it means to be faithful and to live a good life. No servant goes into Buckingham Palace to serve Queen Elizabeth and says, Dear Queen, here are my goals for the palace. I think your furniture is ugly. It looks like it's 60 years old. Let's throw it out and get something better. You can't do that as a servant. No, a servant goes into the palace and says, My queen, what would you like me to do today? There is no task that is too menial or too difficult for me as long as you command it. Whether it's cleaning, dusting, your wish is my command. See, a good servant is one who carries out his master's instructions. And the same is true actually for Christians. What is a successful Christian life? A successful Christian life is being a good servant who is faithful, not worried about the outcome, but is simply faithful to the task that God calls us to. And a good servant of Jesus Christ, especially ministers, are called to preach, to teach, 
when it's in season to do so, and when it's out of season, or people find the message rather unpopular. That is, people don't want to hear it. you still got to preach it. You know, Christian ministry is really not like the business world. The business world rewards innovators, but God rewards imitators, imitators of Christ. And because God's laws are absolute, foundational, and eternal, we are not to invent our own laws and to give people our own opinion, but to give them God's laws and to teach His. It's the same thing how in mathematics, we don't have the right to invent new laws of how mathematics works. We can discover laws that are laid out there, but we don't invent them. When a student comes up to us and says, I think that one plus one equals three, a good math teacher will look at that student and say, no, in the base 10 decimal numeral system of counting, the answer is two, not one, not three, and not four. Now, suppose that math teacher instead said, your answer is great because what's true for you may not necessarily be true for me. I'm so glad that you found a solution that works for you. Do you know what the problem is with this kind of thinking? The problem is the real world does not operate according to laws that you and I define and make up, but it operates according to the laws that God has put in place in the universe. Would you ever want to hire an engineer who has such math skills? You know, I remember a friend of mine, actually, whose brother graduated from chemical engineering school with basically a 51% average. The problem, however, he said, was that nobody wanted to hire a chemical engineer who was wrong 49% or half of the time. A math teacher is not primarily an innovator, but an imitator and a teacher of the laws that have been laid down in this universe. They pass down the timeless laws of mathematics. This is why you say you discover formulas. You don't create them. You discover what is actually there. Same thing is true for us as Christians. We don't invent new things about Christianity. No, we pass down not our subjective laws, but the timeless principles and truths of God's law that are valid for human beings everywhere and for every era of humanity. This is why we can go out and preach things like Romans 3.23 and we say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not just North Americans, not just Chinese people, all of humanity. What is the wages of that? Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Not just for Canadians, not just for people who lived in Nazi Germany, not just for people who live in China, but for all of humanity. But what is the solution? John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And that is true not just for Chinese people, not just for Canadians, but for people all time in every place throughout human history. You know, if you're outlining and you're writing here, I put this in your outline, number one. A good servant of Jesus Christ teaches biblical truth faithfully. No fluff. Whether it's popular or unpopular, servants must be faithful to their master. Now, Pastors do teach, but the text also says here that they themselves are people being trained in the words of the faith. In other words, pastors don't just rely on seminary classes that they took 
to teach people, but they themselves have to have a discipline and an ongoing life of being students of the Word and analyzing life through a biblical lens. Nobody can teach well without actually being a good student as well. The best teachers in this world are lifelong students, and nobody can teach what they just simply make up out of their head as a Christian teacher, but they must teach, as it says, the good doctrine that you have followed. See, it's about learning things, the words of the faith, and also how all these things fit together in systematic truths, what we call doctrine. Just like in university math, you learn in Calculus 101 about integrals, derivatives, partial fractions, but you need to know how to put that all together into a systematic body of mathematical thinking that we call calculus. Same thing for Christians. We learn verses, biblical truths, but we put them all together into not calculus, but to doctrine, systematic theology, how it all fits together. And this is actually the same word that's used when we looked at last week in chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, when it talks about the teachings of demons. That word is actually didaskalia, which is the same word here, doctrines. There's a contrast, right? Not the doctrines of demons. Don't go after that, but go after the doctrines and the systematic teaching of God. Be faithful to that. But this isn't all that good servants do. Look at verses 7 to 8 with me. Paul says this. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. In other words, if I was going to paraphrase these two verses, there's two things that Paul is talking about here. One, Reject, he says, ungodly or silly myths, that is, untrue assertions or stories as wisdom for your life. And secondly, in the positive, train yourself, he says, for godliness in life. So you reject and you train. Now, we talked about myths when we looked way back at 1 Timothy chapter 1 about how they included things like Stories of Jewish extra-biblical literature that was really popular in the culture, but actually not true. And what Paul is saying is you must not fill your mind with these cultural stories or cultural narratives that aren't actually absolutely true. And don't try to live your life by these. Have nothing to do with those sort of things. Now, you can see actually how this works in the ancient world, how mythology shapes the way that people think. You look at the book of Acts, for example, Acts chapter 14, and there's a story told there about how Paul and Barnabas go into the town of Lystra and they heal a man who is crippled. And as the man gets up and starts walking, the town people remember an ancient Greek myth in which two gods, Zeus and Hermes, come down in human form but are treated poorly by the inhabitants of the town. And as a result of that, they absolutely decimate that town and judge it destroying it except for two faithful people they found in there, Baucis and Philemon. Now, the people here of like the Lyconian people who remember this story in their, in their heads, taught this as children, you know, look at what has happened, this healing of the man, and they instantly make a connection in their heads. That older guy over there must be Barnabas. That older guy Barnabas must be Zeus. And that younger-looking guy over there who talks a lot, that apostle Paul, he has got to be Hermes. And because of their cultural presuppositions, they look at them and make the connection, 
my goodness, the gods have come down among us. We better not do what those last people did and got themselves harsh judged, but we need to sacrifice to them. So they drag them over to the temple and they try to offer them sacrifices. See, this happens, um, it, it, it happens because myths, even though they might not be true, as long as you believe them, they affect the way that you live, you worship, your business dealings, and your values in society. And you see the same thing happen, actually, in Acts chapter 19, when the Apostle Paul preaches in Ephesus, and tons of people start converting to Christianity. Now, the powerful silversmiths, the workers of silver, who made a killing and a fortune off of selling their silver idols, realize they've got a problem. The more Christians they are in the city, the less profits they're going to make off of selling silver idols. And so they get worried, and they start going around telling people, do you know what this Paul says? He tells people that the gods made with human hands are not gods at all. And you being a clever, Greco, uh, a clever Greco-Roman person will look at it and say, that is ridiculous. Everybody knows there's lots of gods everywhere. This man is inciting rebellion in our city, and they riot because everybody knows that gods are everywhere, under the rock, in your house, and so on. How dare he say something like that? And for two hours, a mob convenes, and they say, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You know, people today are no different. After the Canucks lost, they rioted over the Stanley Cup loss. Just what you value, whenever that's taken away, people go crazy. Now, why are they so upset? And the answer to that is because of this. When the gospel of Jesus Christ moves in, it threatens the idols of our culture. And when you depend on that idol for your sense of self-worth, your financial well-being, or anything else at all, you will feel threatened. And, if you do not and the only way for you to deal with it, if you don't accept it as being true, is you have to get rid of it or kill it. Or you kill anybody who dares to bring it up. Now, we modern people look at those stories and we roll our eyes at them and say, oh, those silly unenlightened people, they were so ignorant and they didn't realize there was no such thing as God's terrible thing. The question is, what about us? You look at us and we say, we don't believe in myths. Do we? I think we do. You know, I've seen Vancouver apartments now being built which have no floor number 13. Why? Because it's unlucky in Western culture. It's ridiculous. I can't even figure out how many floors there are in a building by counting the number on that elevator anymore. And it's even worse now because there are no floors 4, 14, 24, 34, and especially 44 in some really large skyscrapers. Why is that? Because if you're Asian, you will realize that the number 4 or 四 sounds like the word for 死 or death in Chinese. And for Chinese people, this is considered extremely unlucky. You would never buy Unit 4 on 44 at 444, you know, Heather Street. <laughs> Do you know why it's so odd, actually? It's because if you know anything about mainland China, mainland China is atheistic. But it's very odd that atheistic people who don't believe in a god are this superstitious and refuse to buy anything with the number 4 on it. Functionally, what this means is that you actually believe, if you hold to this, is that you believe that there is such a force called luck or death that is a higher sentient power that has eyes and ears and is just watching you, watching you all the time. And if you buy that wrong apartment with the wrong digit on it, it will come out and will get you. It will get you and your family and your life will be absolutely miserable. What is that? 
If you step out of line and you don't worship this cultural value in the right way, it's going to kill you. In other words, you're not truly an atheist in that actually you believe there are higher powers out there. You might not call it that, but that's actually what you are. Now again, a number of us would have no problem buying an apartment with the number four on it, perhaps. We might roll our eyes at that and say, that's just silly, I don't understand why people hold that in their culture, but hey, okay, that's, that's their culture, I'm not going to say anything about it. What about ours? What about the idols of personal fitness? You know, Many years ago, you can read the accounts of people who grew up in the 60s or the 50s and so on, and they will tell you actually about a time in America where personal fitness and exercise was not a thing. There was a story I read about a lady saying that her dad was one of the early joggers who ran for exercise in the 50s in her town, and peop- uh, in the 60s, in, uh, 60s and into the 70s in her town. And she said people used to drive by him and yell at him and say, keep running, hippie, and they would laugh at his exercise. I mean, who exercised? No respectable person would sweat, go to a gym. What's a gym for? And yet, fast forward to the culture that we are today. You don't exercise? What? Do you even lift? What kind of human being are you? 50 years has changed society so much and what we value. You know, the Atlantic magazine published an article called The Church of CrossFit, in which it argued that the CrossFit exercise program has an evangelistic zeal bordering on a religion. The members hold each other accountable and they're expected to call if they dare to miss a Sunday practice or they're going out of town. This is a non-Christian's writing. If you've never heard of it, for those of you maybe who have not heard of it, CrossFit began as a movement a number of years ago, starting with just 13 gyms, but after 13 years of expansion, it grew to more than 13,000 gyms worldwide. It's an intense exercise program that anybody can join, something for everyone at every level. You all do the same thing. And um, it's not cheap. I looked it up in Vancouver on the North Shore. It's about 200 bucks a month. But people do it. Part of why it's so appealing is that you don't work out alone and that you have a community of people to sweat and work with you. And this community constantly pushes you to be better, stronger, faster, go higher, go heavier. The New York Times actually ran an article on CrossFit pointing out that Americans, and I would say Canadians too, actually have a strange cultural fascination with extreme fitness. We're so free in our prosperity that freedom to us has actually begun to feel like oppression. And therefore, in the minds of people, we seek freedom once again not by enjoying our freedom, by, our, by oppressing ourselves and pushing ourselves to the very limits of our capacities with heavy weights. And there is worship services you can attend. Turn on the TV and simply watch American Ninja Warrior, Britain's Got Talent, and you will see those high on a pedestal who have achieved the extreme limits of what human beings can do. And we look at that and those are what we are supposed to admire. But you know what I think the real draw is behind CrossFit and similar programs? It's not actually so much the exercise. Sure, it's great to get fit, but there's actually a subconscious ideology that lies behind it and that saturates our culture, behind the culture of exercise. See, behind CrossFit and all these personal development and fitness programs is a voice that whispers to us, push yourself to the limit, crush this weight stack, and you know what? You can do anything in life. The only thing holding you back from achieving your dreams is you. 
Look at that weight stack and realize this represents all that's wrong in your life. You beat this, you can do anything. You thought you couldn't do it, but you move that thing, you can do anything. And when you start seeing the pounds dropping off of you, and you look at that scale and you start to like the number that's on there, and you load up you know, a squat rack bar with four plates on there, and you just start squatting these things, and then you start getting bold, you start taking pictures of yourself and in, in the mirror in the bathroom, and you post it on Instagram, you know, and you hashtag it with different things, and you say, you know, six weeks in, feeling better than ever, right? And you, and you start to just create this image of yourself, and you begin to believe, I never knew what I could accomplish. I never knew that I could do such things by pushing myself to the extreme. What else can I do in life if only I set my mind to doing it? And you begin to actually believe you are the sovereign one in control of your life. There are many in North America who believe this myth. Don't say we don't have myths. And all it takes is for you to see a few examples where it doesn't hold true. The college football player who is on his track to professional sports blows out his knee and suddenly his dreams of being in the NFL are gone. A couple carefully saves up their money, looking forward to the day when one spouse can stay at home because they've saved up a large enough nest egg and then they realize they're infertile and absolutely devastated. A woman runs a successful business for 20 years only to be betrayed by her partners in business who steal her ideas and take the essence of her company, leaving her destitute. Or a man whose sudden divorce causes him to lose his house and the nest egg of retirement that he had planned so carefully saying up. All this to say, guys, is that there is a cultural myth that pervades many of us here in North America, and it's this belief, right? If you push yourself, you can be anything you want to be. And this ideology that is preached by our fitness, extreme fitness culture, is antithetical to the word of God that says, no, you are not your own. You aren't to be anything you want to be. You are to be what God wants you to be. God made you, and he, has the lone, he alone has the right to dictate how you are to live your life, and you are sinning by usurping control of your life from the creator God and daring to be God in place of him. You may say that you're an atheist, but in reality, you are your own God. And if anyone disagrees with you, you will fire them, distance yourself from them, ignore them, unfriend them, or maybe even divorce them. See, there's no such thing actually truly as atheists. There are only people who have killed God and taken his place. And when you kill God and his laws, what happens is that you are forced to take the place of God and therefore invent your own standard of laws by which to live by. Paul says, reject the ungodly, irreverent, silly myths of your culture. Don't train yourself on the spiritual junk food that is fed to you by this world, but train yourself, he says, for godliness Godliness in the word and godly living. Be saturated in the things of God. Physical training is of some value. I work out and I think that all people should exercise and keep their bodies healthy. But in the end of the day, you know what? You're all going to be old and frail and you, your, your capacity will only decrease as time goes on. But godliness is value, he says, not valuable, not only for the present life, but also, he says, for the life to come. What is a successful person in the eyes of God? A successful person 
is a good servant of Jesus Christ. What does a good servant do? I put this in your outline number two. A good servant of Jesus Christ exercises regularly in godly living and godly thinking. Church, you know, do you realize that God wants you to give your life to being Christ-fit and not cross-fit? That's what's most important. And it's an amazing thing for me to look at old saints, those who have walked with the Lord for a long time, who have worked out in the gymnasium or in the box of God. Some Christians I look at and say they have squatted so many pounds in Christian service that they don't even sweat when it comes to shouldering the immense weight of opening their homes day after day, week after week, month after month, and serving in Christian ministry, night after night, entertaining guests. Some Christians that you meet have run so many ministry marathons that they are so well-conditioned that they have spiritual cardiovascular systems that are strong and able to endure whatever race God puts out onto them next. They can run for a year without feeling winded. Ultra marathoners because they are trained. Some of you are so well conditioned as saints of God at climbing the grouse grind of Bible studies that you can do in 45 minutes what takes other people three hours to do. You can climb that thing five times over in what people would do once because you're trained for godliness. You may be 80 years old and unable to lift a 10-pound dumbbell, but if you have been trained in godliness, you have spiritual muscles that are still strong and do not grow flabby with age. You have more endurance than a 20-year-old athlete who is but an infant and a baby in Jesus Christ. You know, I think it's absolutely remarkable to think of just how much dignity godliness gives to people as they age. An old saint that becomes frail with an aging body but who has trained himself in godliness can actually still do 12 reps of receiving visitors or bench pressing the spiritually heavy loads that lie on other people's shoulders because they have muscles that are corded with spiritual fibers made out of the scriptures of God. You can be old and you can still be jacked in the things of God. See, godliness is the only thing that grows sweeter with age. And this is why I think Christian marriages can be particularly sweet. Because they can look at a spouse with graying hair, varicose veins, wrinkled lines on their face and say, you are more beautiful or handsome today than you were 30 years ago when I married you. Because I see more of my beautiful Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in you today. That's why we train. We train for godliness that is of value not only for this present life, but that we will take with us into eternity. See, fitness never just happens by itself. Nobody gets to running the Boston Marathon by lying down on the couch and thinking, I want to be fit to run a marathon. I want to be fit to run a marathon. Godliness does not happen as you age either. The only thing that happens to you is that you grow fat, spiritually and physically. And this is why the scriptures demand training. Godliness must be trained like every other skill and endeavor in life. 
And this is what Paul says all people need to understand. This is the trustworthy saying, he says in verse 9, that is deserving of full acceptance. Train yourself for godliness. And this is what leads us into verse 10, our final point here. How do you be a good servant of Jesus Christ? Yes, I know I need to train in godliness. What, what else do I do? How do I work? What attitude do I need to have as I go out and I do this? Verse 10. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. I put this in your outline number three. A good servant works with the hope in a saving God. A good servant works with hope in a saving God. Why do Christians toil and strive and work so hard for this end? That is, to see people coming to faith in Jesus Christ and growing godliness. Why do we work so hard at this? And the answer is because we serve a living God who offers himself to all people and desires, as it says in chapter 2, verse 4, for all people to be saved. We go to God and we pray and we say, God, would you save these people? Would you grow the people in my church to be godly? I know you will answer that because that is your heart, God. This is what, you know, Christ is a savior for all people, meaning that he extends his hand out to you if you don't know him and says, come to me and be saved from your sins. But he's especially, he says, the savior of those who have come to know him in a true saving relationship who call Jesus Christ their Lord, master, and their savior. This is why we can actually work in hope and joy because we serve a God who wants people to know him. You know, as a Christian, we don't have to ever worry, unlike a business person, that we'll spend 20 years of our life working over people and that all our work is wasted if they walk away or our church folds. By working for the Lord Jesus Christ and serving our master, he will look at that work and say, don't worry about it. The results are mine. You were faithful for 20 years. You don't have to worry about your heart being broken. If your heart is not here in the things of the world, but is in heaven where your treasure is and where Christ is. It will always be secure if that's where your heart is. You know, friends, my life is disciplined by necessity. Not because I'm in great, but because God has placed responsibilities in my life. I'm naturally a very lazy person. But the type of responsibilities that God has put into my life, and in many of yours, are responsibilities I cannot just leave. I cannot wake up in the morning and say, I'm too tired to feed my kids today. You go and feed yourselves. They will die. They, they, they need food. I can never say, I don't feel like preaching or caring for God's people. Not just because it's my job to do so, but because it's my calling to do so. God has said, feed my sheep. And the master's command for me, whether people are happy or not, are what is foremost in my heart and my mind. Every week, my spiritual exercise and discipline and routine is to spend hour after hour reading my Bible, thinking it through. How am I to live differently? How are the people of God supposed to live differently? And memorizing the scriptures and building up my spiritual strength. You know, someone once told me that men are like pickup trucks. They drive better when they're loaded up with responsibility. I think that's really true, actually. I'm very grateful for having a family and a church family that needs me and whom I need as well. It is because of my church family and my children 
I wake up as well in the morning knowing that God has put real life flesh and blood human beings in my face, that he has privileged me to serve. You know, God has saved me and he's saving me every single day as I work out my own salvation in fear and trembling, knowing that he's working in me. And I know also one day he will usher me safely into his heavenly kingdom. And I want above all else to hear from him, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, church, as we wrap this up, friends who are sitting here, let me just ask you, what is the good life to you? What does it mean to be successful? Have you bought into cultural myths the myths that lie in our North American society behind CrossFit and extreme athletic culture and our self-achievement culture. I'm not speaking against the program in itself or speaking against exercise, but what I'm speaking against is what lies behind it. The idea that the good life is yours to grab and to define however you want. The successful life is pushing yourself to the very limits and going out and fulfilling your plans and dreams. To that, the Bible says that is a lie. Your life is not your own to live. You belong to God, and he calls you into his service to be his child. You know, part of the appeal of CrossFit is that it says it's for everyone, you know? But the truth really is that it's not. There will always be those who are too sick, too frail, too poor, too broken, or too close to death to participate, or too unable to train their physical bodies in such an extreme way. In the race of life, even if everyone runs hard, somebody will always be last. But everyone, without exception, can run in the race of Jesus Christ. Everyone can be Christ-fit, train themselves for godliness. See, are you looking for meaning in your life and to accomplish great things that will last forever? Then don't get a personal trainer. What you need is a spiritual trainer. And Jesus Christ is a strict but merciful trainer who demands that you exert yourself to the max for him. When you feel that you can push no more, our Lord knows exactly how you feel and will add only the right amount of weight to condition you and to strengthen you so that you are growing in your strength for him and Christian character. Learn to suffer and endure well, as Romans 5, 5, verses 3 to 5 says. Rejoice in sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character and character produces hope you want to grow in endurance you want to grow in christian character then learn how to suffer well as a good servant of jesus christ brothers and sisters those of you who are here i want you to be christ fit and not crossfit crossfit is of some value but christ fit is of value in every way and that should be the ambition of us in life You know, if you don't know Jesus Christ here and you are new here, what I want to say to you is that God reaches out to you and he calls you to know him, to love him, to ask him for the forgiveness of your sins and to turn over your life to him and to allow him to make you new. Don't give in to the cultural narrative that is being preached outside in the world. This is the true narrative that will last forever. You can be a servant of Jesus Christ and live forever in his presence. That is what you were made to be. Brothers and sisters and friends here, it's not about being a self-made individual, but being a good servant of Jesus Christ. And may God help us not to play God in our own lives, but to submit to him and to give us a life that we could never have dreamed of or imagined in his son. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for not only being our savior, but also our personal trainer who helps us to grow in godliness and helps others to grow as well. 
Lord, would you help us to see that all the things in this world, bodily training and reaching for our dreams, will one day fail us even as our bodies grow old and we die. Help us to see that living for you and believing in you is more valuable than anything else in the world. So I pray, Father, that you would help us train to be Christ-fit people, soldiers of the cross who are ready for every good work. I pray this, Father, in Jesus' name.